Well, it's kind of uh, straightforward to say, but every structure needs a foundation. Every building, if it plans on lasting any amount of time at all, the structure, the foundation itself has to be well thought out, well planned, and well executed. Without which the, the structure will completely fall apart. And this is not, this is not a new concept. This is a concept that, that extends way back into the ancient times. I'm sure everybody in here can think of the pyramids and think of the structures, the massive building structures that, that, that it takes to uphold those buildings out there in the desert. Well, the same thing when we think of Herod's temple. Well, Herod was a massive builder. He, he used such huge stones to build the Herod's temple, to the temple during Jesus' time, that they even got their own name, Herodian stones, because they're so massive. Some are 20 tons or more. The foundation is critical, and he knew this. Well, when we look at the book of Haggai tonight, we're going to look at a people that have returned to the land. They've returned to the promised land that God has given them since their exile. But they have forgotten their foundation. They have forgotten what they were supposed to be focused on. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 was supposed to be the focus of their life. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. They had forgotten that. They had allowed hard times, difficult, time, difficult situations to allow that to fade to the outskirts of their life. And now God calls the prophet Haggai to address this issue. So as we begin, we'll look at this first section. It's verses 1 through 11 as a block, but we'll deal with it in its pieces. And it's God must be the focus of his people. So let's start with verses 1 through 4, and I'll read. It says, In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and, the, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? God immediately, right off the bat, addresses them as this people. Now, and, you know, to us readers, we're like, yeah, of course, that's the natural way. But that's not the way God addresses his people. God usually in the Old Testament addresses his people as my people. These are the chosen people that he's called to himself to be a representative to the world. This is my people, his people. But now we're getting to see that God is showing that their heart is far from him. He's addressing them now as this people, this people, not my we see in Exodus, we look all the way back to Exodus 3-7, the Lord says, I have surely seen, this is when he's about to draw the people out of slavery. He says to them, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I have given heed to their cries because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. Not only that, but in Exodus 6-7, he says, Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God 
and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of Egypt. Not only this, but look at verse, look at verse 2. He says, this people says the time has not come. So basically the Lord here is quoting a saying that they're, I've gotten almost like a colloquial expression. Oh, well, it's not time yet. You know, the situation's still too difficult. The crops are still too few. The weather, maybe it's the weather is not good enough for them. Something is stopping them from building the temple. We get a little bit of background on this in Ezra. So we can see here in Ezra 4, if you want to turn to Ezra 4, we'll look at that just a slightly. Ezra 4, verses 4 through 5. So we might, we'll only turn to Ezra a couple times, but just to give a little background of what's going on, we see that when the people returned, verses 4 and 5 says, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, and even into the reign of Darius the king. So we see that because of this, this attacks and because of this discouragement, the pe people have stopped building the temple. But as we see from the other verse following this, what haven't they stopped? Building their own houses. They've gone, they've continued to build their houses, continued to, even so much so, there's so affluent people there that they gave in paneled houses. Now, in the Old Testament, that means nice houses. That doesn't mean that everybody in the land was living nice, living well, and doing well. But it definitely means that there was enough money going around for the temple to be built. Well, God is calling them to task. Listen. You forgot what used to be the prize of your heart. What used to be the focus of your life was to have the temple. You've forgotten that. You've left it. You've left the point of your life. Now look here at verses 5 to 6 as we move forward. He says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Now, this, 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 this phrase in Hebrew actually means set your heart on. Set your heart on it. Think about it. Consider it. Set your mind. He's about to start showing them things that they should have been picking up all along. They should have been seeing that maybe, maybe things are not so good because their focus is wrong. Maybe things are not what they should be because something else is going on in their life. Their eyes are not on the Lord. Look here, verses 5 and 6. We'll continue in verse 6. You have sown much, but you harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put in a purse with holes. Literally, like somebody has cut holes. Everything that they try to do doesn't prosper. Everything that they put their, put their hands to and they've worked and committed to and the things that should be naturally occurring are not. He says, set your heart on this. Think about this. Things are not going the way that they're supposed to go for you. You're supposed to be a blessed people. You're not. Why? 
And he says, he says in this, he says, verses 7 through 8. We'll look here. He says, thus said the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. There's that again. You'll see this. He, he does it multiple times throughout Haggai. Set your heart on this. Think on this. Consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and rebuild the temple, that I might be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much. We'll look at verse 9 here. You look for much, but behold, it comes too little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. God is directing me continually. He's saying, set your mind on this. Think about why you don't have what you need. It's because of they were under the De De Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, blessing and the cursings. Remember who you are. Remember who the people you are. You're supposed to be setting your mind on here. You're supposed to be glorifying God. God spells it out for them. He says, listen, go up to the mountains on verse 8. It says, bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified. This is why they were made as a people. To glorify God. This is why we're all made. You, me, everybody. To bring glory to God. That's our purpose in life. As it says in Isaiah, Isaiah 43, 7, it says, Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even who I am made. Everyone is made for God's glory in that aspect. So they have for completely forgotten that. And the Lord tells them, he tells them, he says, verse 10, look at this. Verse 10, he says, therefore, oh, my bad, move forward. Nope. I knew it was going to be an issue, PowerPoint. <laughs> but uh, verse, uh, verses 10, therefore, because of you, the sky is withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land and the mountains on the grain. On the new wine, on the oil, on, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and all the labor of your hands. Everything that you've set your life to, I've called curses down on them. I've brought it to naught, nothing. Because you're my people and you've completely lost focus of your life. This message of, that Haggai is delivering to them is a message just as much pertinent today, just as much to us. We, as God's people, are people that are supposed to have our eyes, our mind, our heart, everything we do completely focused on who God is, on glorifying him, putting him first in our life. Haggai is driving that message home to these people. And what's interesting is, we'll, we'll cover this later on, is they actually had an altar. They were making sacrifices. But what they didn't care about was the temple. Temple was supposed to be the symbol of the presence of the Lord amongst his people. They didn't care about that. They said it's too difficult. They lost focus. So when we look at this, moving from this first section... Look at that. What does it mean for you? 
Well, number one is consider your ways. Consider your life. You as a Christian, ambassadors of Christ, living in the world, representing God, working, going to school, doing all the things that a normal person does throughout their days, but are you doing it with a focus on the Lord? Are you doing what you do in life to glorify God? or Is that, is that your purpose? Is that really your heart's desire? Because here's the reality. Just like these people, they had plenty of excuses. They were coming back from exile. They had lots of people attacking them, lots of people stopping them from doing things, discouraging them. They were living under an empire, living under powers that weren't their own. They weren't autonomous. They didn't get to do whatever they wanted to do. They had lots of reasons why not to make God the focus of their life. Just like we come up with lots of excuses. Well, God is calling us just like he's calling them to consider your ways. God won't be pacified with your excuses. You can't, hi- you can't hide it from him. Even if you're the best talker in the world and you give all the best excuses to your friends and families and whoever it may be, God sees right to the heart of it. He's going to see the truth. Is your life really focused on him? That's when you, when you consider this, when you continually work through this passage, you're going to see that consider. He keeps doing that. He keeps reminding them to consider it. Remember, as we've already said, you were created for his glory. Your life is meant to glorify God. You go to work, you work to the glory of God. Lord willing, one day, if, if that's God's will for your life, you get married, you get married to the glory of God. You live your marriage life to the glory of God. Everything. Is focused to glorifying God. That's our life. That should be your focus. And God must be the focus of your life. Just to reiterate this, let's walk through a couple, just three New Testament passages, kind of build this case for you. In case you're like, okay, well, I know God, we're supposed to be focused, but no, listen to this. Listen to the words. Matthew 22, 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, And with all your soul, with all your mind, this is the great and foremost commandment. Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Romans 12, 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Our whole life focused. Whole life should be focused on him, glorifying him, calling him, to, to uh, call, uh, representing him in this world. All right, section two. So let's, before I get too far. All right. Verse 12. So section two, it says, God will forgive and be with his people. So we see some amazing things beginning in section two. But we'll, we'll, or, uh, we'll read verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent them. And the people showed reverence. For the Lord. 
This right here, this verse is amazing in the Old Testament. Let me tell you something. As you read through the Old Testament, you will find it rare that the people actually respond with repentance. That they actually respond the way they're supposed to. God calls them on their sin. He calls them on the fact that they're not focused on him. The fact that they've forgotten about him. And they repent. The leaders repent. So it's Zerubbabel Josh, and Joshua and all the remnant. And the people repent. They all do. And it says they obeyed the voice of their God. So their God appears twice in verse 12 and again in verse 14. So you remember from the first where he says, this people, now we're seeing, we're starting to see this heart change. Now we're seeing the language change. Their God, their God starts repeating the possession. They start saying, we were wrong. We truly repent from the heart. So we see this change going on. And it says, they showed reverence for the Lord. And the English honestly doesn't do this justice, this verse justice. It, 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 really, it really literally renders, they were feared, uh, filled with fear before Yahweh. That's reverencing God. They reverenced him. They were filled with fear before him. They realized that they were sinners, that they had sinned and forgotten their God, and now they understood. They reverenced him. And it acknowledged the fact that they were remembering the covenant blessing and cursings. As we look back at Leviticus 26 again, we'll, we'll look back there, but I'll, uh, I'll read it for you. Verses 40 and 42. So God has given the blessings and then he has given the cursings. And he comes to the end of the cursings. He says, listen, verses 40 through 40. If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers in their unfaithfulness, which they have committed against me, also in their acting with hostility against me, I also was in acting with hostility against them. So this is all the way back in Leviticus. Guess what? We just heard that from God saying, I had, I had destroyed your crops. I had made it where you didn't have what you thought. Everything, you couldn't be satisfied with what you had. You're hearing it at Leviticus. This is all the way back from the beginning. He says, to bring them into the land of their enemies, or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled, so that they then make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember also my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant Abraham as well, and I will remember the land. They had reached back into their understanding of who God is and the promises of the covenant. And they had repented and feared God, put their reverence before him. And you see this, this is echoing in a sense Psalms 34, 8 through 10, where he says, and you'll know this because this is a famous song that we hear a lot from particular artists. But you'll hear this when he says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For to those who fear him, there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. These people understood the way back to the Lord. They understood how to repent. Now, 
We'll see. How does the Lord respond to this repentance? Verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. The chief blessing of the people. This was it. This was the pinnacle blessing that you could have as a remnant people, just as it is today, that God is with you. This is Leviticus 26, the peak. He says, Leviticus 26, Leviticus 26, 11 through 12 says, this was, so there's some people that believe that Caiaphas, Leviticus 26, the blessing and curse build. So at the very peak, the pinnacle blessing, God says, moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. You see this, God will be with his people. This is why this short statement is foundationally assuring, just, just completely assuring to this people. They need to hear this, just as we need to hear it. They've repented. God has responded with the chief blessing. I am with you. I am with my people. He says, God will be just as he was, and he will be with them just as he was before they entered the land. Because God is here echoing his language. Because now these are post-exiles. Right? They're coming back to the land. Well, God here is echoing the language of Joshua. So Joshua chapter 1, when the people are about to be led into this land, God tells Joshua, he says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God has returned to the exile people. God has commissioned a prophet to tell them a message. They have repented, and now he has reminded them that I am with you. And you'll see some of this courage language. He says that also, too. So you'll see some of this same language be reminded to these people. He says, just as he said to Moses in Exodus 3.12, he says, certainly, I will be with you. And just as the psalmist declares, the Lord, is, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. The people have received this promise. And the Lord just doesn't leave it there. The Lord doesn't just leave them with, I am with you. But he ensures it. He ensures that message. He ensures the work will be done. Look here, verse 14 through 15. He says, so the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. And on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius, the king. The Lord ensured the good work of building the temple would be done. The word stirred here, it means to excite, to put into motion. God empowered them to do this work that they needed to do. 
He didn't just say, I am with you and let them go. He said, I am with you. And then he stirred them to do the work. And not only that, but they, they, when he said he stirs the spirit of the rulers, I mean, Yahweh has energized the will and the thought of the people and the leaders to accomplish the task set before them. So God has encouraged them and empowered them to do this. Now, I don't know about you, but when it says, what does, what, what does this mean for me or what does it mean for you today? We see a lot of similarities in the New Testament. God promising to be with his people, promising to encourage and empower his people to do good works. We see the same type of language. But we must understand that we must repent and trust in God. Just as they did when God called them on their, called them on their sin. We as God's people are repenting people. What that means is that we acknowledge sin, and we acknowledge with God. We agree with God what sin is, and we acknowledge when we sin. That is what it means, like the, what the same thing that the people of Haggai's time did. God called them on their sin, just like the Word of God calls us on our sin, and we say, yes, we have sinned, and we repent. And for believers, we see that 1 John 1.9 one of the famous verses that probably pops in your head. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive, forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We agree with what God, with what sin is. We acknowledge the sin in our life and we repent of it, turn away from it, and turn towards the righteous things of God. That's what we as Christians, modern-day Christians, do. Now, there's a flip side to this. Unbelievers. Anybody here tonight that's an unbeliever, that you're not sure of your salvation, let me tell you something. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark 1.15. That's your focus. Repent and believe in him. Believe in the gospel. Believe in the finished works of Christ. For just as God was calling the people of Haggai to repentance, he will call everyone to justice. He, will call, he is a just and perfect God, and he will punish sin, just as he has done with them. Remember that we're talking about post-exile people. They had already been punished, sent into exile. So God will punish sin. So as an unbeliever, remember, today is the day to repent and believe in him. All right, section three, we're moving to chapter, chapter two. There's only two chapters in this book, so just hang with me. Chapters two, verses one through nine. All right, we'll begin with looking at chapters one, or verses one through three. So God will provide a more glorious temple. So we see in chapters one through three, I'll give you a little heads up before you read it. God asks three questions. So as we read it, just, just stay focused and see if you can pick out the three questions here. Say, it says, on, on the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, 
Who is left among you? Who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? So God asks three questions. He says, who of you is left among you that saw the original temple? So there were some exiles that were old enough to have seen the original temple, have seen Solomon's temple. And now they're seeing the rebuilding of this temple. He says to them, he says, how do you see it now? Does it seem to you like nothing in comparison? So there's a backstory here that goes to Ezra. So Ezra 3, 10 through 13. I'll, show, I'll read verses 12 through 7. So they had the ceremony of building the foundation, right? And they're all there, the priests, everybody, for this temple celebration. Listen to the words. It says, Now, when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites and the son of Asaph, and the, with symbols and praise the Lord according to the direction of the king David of Israel. They sang and praising, giving him thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. This was 16, roughly 16 years prior. So verse 12 says, Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundations of this house was laid before their eyes. While many shouted along aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of shout of joy from the sound of weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. What he's saying there is that the people that could see the temple now were weeping. God is addressing this in Haggai, and he's telling them, how do you see it now? Now, this seems like an odd set of questions coming but what it's doing is he's building to give these people the epitome of assurance. He's like, look, I know that you're having difficulties. And I know the temple is nothing what it looked like in Solomon's day. But a greater temple is coming. One that will be perfect. Rebuilt in the millennial kingdom. And that's what God is building to here. He's telling them, he's giving them that assurance. He says, God will not let them stay in the dismay of their hope. So look at verses 4 and 5. It says, but now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord. Y'all hear, y'all hear uh, Joshua's words again? Like that, take courage, I am with you. He's, doing, he's using some of the same language. He says, declares the Lord and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. For the Lord says in three times in verse 4, he says, take courage. He's building them and reminding them that I'm with you. Remember that I'm with you. I'm amongst you. I'm going to empower you to do what you need to do. You just need to take courage and do it. Remember, remember who you are. Remember whose people you are. And remember that I am with you. And he says, verses 6 through 9, 
the promise of the internal kingdom. Let's look at verses 6 through 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. And I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former glory, says the Lord of hosts. In this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord. Listen, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies is telling them that, listen, I know that you're dismayed. I know that you need assurance. I've already told you the chief assurance that I'm with you. But I'm going to tell you something more. I'm going to tell you about a time when I'm going to shake the earth. When the Hebrews actually addresses this, but we won't go there. It might be too long. But Hebrews 12, for 25 through 27, if you want to look at it later, deals with this. It uses this same verse. And what it says is this, basically. It says, I'm going to shake everything to the only things left are the eternal things. God here is pictured to them the millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom, when the temple there will be beautiful beyond comparison. You're looking now at a time of difficulty, and you're looking now at a temple that is barely built. But there's a day coming when a temple will be indescribable. He says it. He goes, he says, the gold is mine. And the silver is mine, verse 8, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord's house. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. This is not, he's not talking about Herod's temple. He's not talking about, although Herod's temple was nice for his day, what he's talking about is the glory of the millennial kingdom. When Christ will reign, the temple will be built, and peace will be on the earth. He's telling them to look forward. Look to the future. Remember I am with you, and remember my promises. As we walked through over this last couple of weeks, we walked through multiple of the minor prophets, you've seen this theme reoccur. Where he's assured the people and then reminded the people of the future. Remember. Remember what's coming. Remember who you are. What the future is for you. So the last verse, I'll touch on just a bit. It says, verse 9, and I will give peace. In this, in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And there's two ways of looking at this. Two ways. God will not only give peace between the believer and God. But God will give the peace that only we only see during that millennial kingdom. Where we see people sitting a mess as a man could sit under a fig tree without being disturbed. Where people will beat their war armaments into tools, into plowshares. That God will destroy all the chariots, all, no more wars, no more, no more elements of war, no more strategies to be talked about. The peace will be universal because Christ is king on earth. So this is what he's coming down to. He's assuring them that a time is coming 
for God will make perfect these promises. So as we look to understand what does this mean for you? What does this mean for the believer today? Well, number one, take courage. Just like he told these people, just like he told Joshua before the people even came into the land to get kicked out of it. He told them to take courage. Remember who you are. You're a child of the king, Lord most high. Take courage in your life. Work hard for Christ, as we'll see in the next point. Work hard for him. Remember whose son, whose daughter you are. Remember you're the temple of the Holy Spirit, destined for good works. That's who you are. Like the first section we saw, focus on God. Well, here's where you take the focus and you put feet to it and you glorify God through the works of your life. This is what God is calling them to do. He said, listen, remember the future. Remember who you are. Work to glorify God. That's what he's calling them to do. Remember where you're headed. Because we have a beautiful, beautiful hope ahead of us as believers. Look at Romans. I'll read Romans. This is a slight to the peace of verse 9, but he says, Romans 5 through 1, 1 through 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. That's what's coming for us glorification. That's where we're headed. Pastor Tom's been going through Revelation, been teaching on the book. Well, guess what? Revelation 20, verse 6. Blessed and blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. That's our reality. That's our future. That's what we look forward to. Just as the people of Haggai, so the people today, so you. Do you run your race of life with that mentality, looking for that, saying, God is with me, God has destined me to do good works, and God has destined me a future certain, as the word of God is certain? That's how we're supposed to live our lives. Just as they, they had work to do, they had to build the temple. But God gave them just like he gave us. He gave us future promises to look for. So remember that when you live your life. Live your life to the glorification of God with the mind set to the future. All right, section four. Chapters two, verses 10 through 19. We'll look first at verses 10 through 14. All right. On the 24th of the ninth month, on the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask now the priest for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with his fold or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? And the priest answered, no. Then Haggai said, if one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered, it will become unclean. Then Haggai said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hands. And what they have off, what they offer, there is unclean. Oh boy. The Lord turns it. 
So they had just been given all this assurance, all this, this hope, all these future promises had been reminded them, and now God presses it back to the people with these two questions. This is a rare occurrence in the Old Testament where God questions, presents these questions to the people, and it's a beautiful illustration. God gives the first question. He says to the priest, he asks them, he says, if a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and it touches bread with this fold, or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? And the priests answer, no. So they were probably feeling pretty good about themselves at this point because they had answered a difficult question. They understood from the past laws, from the Torah, that they could take the sacramental meat, the holy meat, and they could put it in their garment because there was some meat that they could take and they could eat at other places. And when the sacrificial meat would be put in the storage in their cloak, the garment would be made clean. But God asked them, if the garment hits something, will it be made clean? Will it be made holy? And they go, no. Right. Now he answers second too. He drives them to point to question two. He says, verse 13, he says, Then Haggai said, if one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, that means any of that food, any of that oil, any of that bread, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered, it will become unclean. He has just gave them a beautiful illustration of the fact of their spiritual state. They had repented, but there's a problem. Sin is rampant. He had just illustrated to them that holiness is not transferable to the second and the third and the fourth things like sin is. Holiness, you have to be in contact with the sanctifier. Whereas the sin was transferred to everything. Look at verse 14. He says, then Haggai said, so is this people. And so is the nation before me, declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. He had addressed to them that, listen, Everything that you've brought to me, every half ration that you had is touched by your sin. You thought because you had an altar, you thought that you were giving me what little you had on the altar, you thought that that was making you clean. God has now demonstrated to them that, listen, everything you touch has been tainted with your sin. He has put a black light on the fluorescent paint of their sin. Turned it on. Everything they now own, everything they have, like a paint can in a hot garage that's been bursting, everything they have is splattered with paint in sin. That's the reality of their life. They didn't know it. Why, why is God dealing with them like this? Because he's reminding them that, listen, God is the sanctifier. Your sacrifices, if the heart ain't right, if the focus ain't right, God will not accept it. As he done to these people, he's reminding them, listen, you need to understand that you are unclean before me. And you need a sanctifier. But he goes on. He doesn't leave them there. Like God is often do, so gracious. 
He says, consider the curses and where to draw the people, verses 15 and 17. So verses 15 and 17 says, but now do consider. Again, we see that set your heart on. Set your heart on those things. Set your will and set your mind on it. Think about this. I'm about, God's about to show him something. He said, listen, from this day onward, before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord, from the time when one came to a grain heap of 20 measures, there would be only 10. And one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, and there would be only 20. I smote you. I smote you in every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail. Yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. His curses were meant to drive them back to him with a full heart, with a real heart, humbly submitting repentance, but they did not do it in the past. But what he's doing here is he's about to build the case to say, listen, remember, think about these things. I'm trying to remind you of what you've been through because I'm about to bless you. Because repentance, they've repented, they've turned. He's told them about their sin. He's going to deal with that. But now he's reminding them, I'm going to bless you. Look at verses 18 and 19. Do consider from this day, he again hits them with the, think about this, from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider, is the seed still in the barn? Even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree, it has not borne fruit. Yet from this day on, I will bless you. The repentance had been heard. God has dealt with them on their sin, but God is a sanctifier. He will deal with that. He will sanctify them. He had to remind them that, listen, just because you've repented, don't mean the sin has been dealt with just yet. But he's going to bless them. And he's going to bless them from this day forward. From the day they've now set foot to work to rebuild the temple, he's going to undo the curses that he's put on them. So that's what he's reminding them of. Now, what does that mean for me and you? Well, if you haven't picked picked up on it just yet, Maybe quite simple. Me and you, just like them, need a sanctifier. We have sin. Everything we've touched is affected by sin. We need somebody to make us clean. We need Jesus Christ. Just as they looked forward to the Messiah, we look back to the Messiah. To Christ, who is our King, who has an atonement. That's the only way we can be justified. We can be declared righteous is through Christ. If you don't think that it's a serious issue, let those words from verse 14 ring in your ears. Hear them one more time. It says, Then Haggai said to this people, And so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. So is every work of their hands. And what they offer is unclean. Everything they touched is unclean before him. That's how serious sin is to God. He, it's not just a, he don't just wink at it. He don't just say, oh, well, they did their best. 
Sin was serious enough that his son died on the cross for atonement. If you think that he's not serious about sin, just remember what Christ did to pay for it. That's the reality. We all have to live in that. We have to deal with the sins. So tonight, if you're a believer, you have Jesus as your atonement and your high priest. Let me read just a segment of Hebrews, just to remind you of Christ and what he does. He says, The former priests, on the one hand, existed in great numbers because they they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices for his own sins and for the sins of the people, because this he did once, for all when he offered up himself. That's the high priest, the perfect high priest, Jesus Christ. If you're a believer, you have that intercession. If you are not a believer, right now your sins are as blatant to God as the people's were in Haggai. Everything you touch is offensive to him. You need a sanctifier. And for those who are in Christ, you're blessed, just like the people were. You're now sanctified, and you have received the chief blessing. Colossians 2, 3, he's talking about Christ. He says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That is your blessing. God has blessed you with that union with Christ. Section 5. All right. So God turns here, and he does something interesting. He speaks twice on the same day. So this is, this is unique in its time. It says, verse 20, I'll begin on verses 20 and 21. It says, Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. Let's just move into verse 22. It says, and I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders will go down. Everyone by the sword of another. God reaches forward and declares to them the millennium. He says, I'm going to establish a kingdom. Just as in the last section He turned to the priests to ask them a question. Now he turns to the governor and he tells them, listen, Zerubbabel. And he's talking to Zerubbabel for a reason. We'll see that in just a second. He addresses him. He says, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I'm going to establish that kingdom, that perfect kingdom, where I'm going to destroy all the power of the kingdoms and the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders will go down, and everyone by the sword of another. 
He will establish that perfect kingdom. And he will do it to establish a king. Look at verse 23. It says, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Sheatel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. God talks explicitly to Zerubbabel. And there's a reason for this. Because he is acknowledging the Davidic line. Zerubbabel is in the line of David. These people have come back from the exile. They're now starting to rebuild the temple. But guess what? They still have the promises to look forward to. They know that a Messiah is supposed to come. The king of kings is supposed to come, the line of David. But how? Well, he points to Zerubbabel. He goes, I will make you a signet ring, a symbol of honor, authority, and power. And he calls him my servant, a name alluding to the Messiah. The Lord has, pull, has told him that, listen, I'm going to reestablish the line. And I'm going to bring about that king I promised. Just as I promised you that a kingdom is coming, I told you I'm going to shake the world and establish the millennial kingdom. Well, I'm going to bring that king. If you can, turn with me real quick to Matthew. Matthew 1. Matthew 1, verses 12. Matthew 1, verse 12. I'll read it. It says, After the deportation to Babylon, Jehokona became the father of Sheatel, and Sheatel the father of Zerubbabel. So I know that most of you know Matthew 1 is the genealogy of Christ. So we see here Zerubbabel's in the genealogy. But guess what? Turn to Luke 3. Come right over to Luke 3. I want you to see it. I want you to see him show up in something else, some other genealogy. Show up in what they a lot of people call Mary's genealogy. But you see in Luke 3, 27. Luke 3, 27. The son of Jonah, Jonah, the son of Resha, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatel, the son of Neri. So God and Haggai has reached back and told Zerubbabel that I'm going to establish the line of David, that I'm going to bring about that Messiah, that king, that was long promised, and I'm going to reestablish that covenant promise to David. And you see here the New Testament confirming that. You see Zerubbabel show up in the genealogies. This is confirmation of God showing forth that he is going to bring about the things he has promised. Now, what does that mean today? Well, it means clearly you must believe that Jesus is the Messiah and the King. He is the King of kings, Lord of lords. He is the one who's come. He is the one who's ruling at the right hand of the Father right now. And he is coming again. This is a certainty. I posted a big block on here. 
This is the final ending little statement I'll read here about in Revelation 19, 11 through 16. This is for those who may not think it's a big deal that Jesus is their king, that Jesus is their Lord. Let me read to you what it will be like to see him come. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings. And Lord of Lords. He came the first time as a lamb to be the atonement, to live a perfect life. The next time he will come, a triumphant king. So understand that if you don't know him as the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, you will still bend the knee and declare that he is Lord. Because he is for all eternity. So understand that today, let today be the day. Don't let tonight go by. Don't let this week go by that God isn't your focus. That your life isn't lived to the glory of God. That you are not in the atonement of Christ under his atoning blood. And has the intersection, intercession as high priest. Because if you see him again, not being in union with Christ, you will be judged. And you will be like the people of Haggai, where everything you have touched, tainted with sin, will be punished. So understand that as we come to a close. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word, Lord. We thank you for your wonderful truth and how you have guided us and directed us Lord we thank you that you have called us to be your people Father we thank you for Christ for the promise of a future Lord we thank you for all things Jesus Christ's name I pray amen